we remain standing for the reading of the gospel in the 14th chapter of Luke's gospel, beginning at verse 25. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then, while the other's still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciples if you do not give up all your possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Our children are dismissed for Children's Church. You be sure and thank a children's worship leader sometime. (laughs) Jesus was a lousy evangelist. At least compared to the evangelists that came to my home church when I was growing up, all who seemed to be able to impale my marshmallow soul on their theological sticks and roast me over the flames of hell. And all you had to do to avoid the vivid flames was walk the aisle and tell the preacher that you were just a sorry human being and you needed Jesus to save you. Numbers were an important measure. They were effectiveness. How many marshmallow people there were. Validated manipulative preaching. But Jesus, lousy evangelist that he was, starts here with a large crowd. He starts with the numbers. And he turns on them with stark requirements. You have to do these things to qualify as a follower. Maybe he sensed the crowd followed because they enjoyed hearing someone poke the religious and political elite. Maybe he was just tired of being the good guy, the designated good guy. Maybe he saw how demeaning and degrading their whole world had become and saving people caught in its maw demanded dedicated followers, not a popularity contest. And so he tells this crowd to think about the cost of following him, telling them that they better check the budget of heart and mind and see if they can afford faith, see if they can pay for discipleship. And he uses some rough language to address what I think are three related questions about faith. And the first of those is, who am I? And the second is, what do I believe? And the third is, how shall I live? 
This first question, this who am I question, Jesus lays down a condition of discipleship as hating parents and siblings and spouse and children. Such statements make us really just want to pick up a phone and call Child Protective Service and a few family therapists. We know that hate poisons the soul of those who espouse it. But this is more than just the translating of words from one language to another. We also need to translate a culture to another culture. If I were to say to a first century person, what is your favorite flavor? Is it chocolate or strawberry? Now, I know they probably didn't have either one, but humor me. They might choose and say, I love strawberry and I hate chocolate. They seemingly did not think about, I love strawberry so much and chocolate's just a really close second. It never would have occurred to them to dip the strawberries into chocolate. <laughs> no, it was always love one and hate the other. And they defined their choosing this way. So the word hate here is talking about choice. How do you choose to be identified? I think it also helps to know that they identified themselves by family heritage. Jesus is sometimes identified as the son of Joseph. If you look at the genealogy in the first chapter of Matthew, and most of us never look at that chapter, it's boring. Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of Jacob, the son of Matthew, the son of Eleazar, and on and on. Your credentials were your family tree. So who am I? So who am I if I don't start by telling you I'm the son of George, the son of William Jasper? Who am I if I cannot identify as Mary's husband? Who am I if I cannot tell you that I'm Beth's father? Who am I if I cannot be identified as the papa of my grandchildren? The suggestion here is to choose your identity. Who are you? Who am I? Life constantly asks us who we are in any given circumstance. Who am I in relationship to others when it goes well and when it doesn't go so well? Who am I when my own thoughts and feelings and inclinations and orientations do not match up with parental expectations and church norms? Who am I when someone at school is being bullied? Who am I when someone at work is harassed? Who am I when I'm successful and admired? Who am I when I fail and scorned? Who am I when grief overwhelms and the questions come? Who am I in great joy? Who am I when I'm sick and afraid? Who am I when I'm powerless? Who am I when I have the power? Answering such questions by saying, well, I'm George's son, doesn't begin to get it. Doesn't begin to address the issues I have faced and even now face in my own life. And I suspect that's true for you too. But what if we start with a choice choosing a constant, basic identity that transcends the circumstances. 
What if I choose to be a follower of Christ, a child of God? So who am I? I'm a child of God, loved fully by God, one free to be an authentic person, free to question and explore, free to love, free to doubt. So this is who I am when I'm admired or scorned, when I succeed or when I fail, when I'm in the midst of conflict or when I'm grieving and questioning or when I'm just rethinking things I was told I should believe, I'm a child of God. Who am I? Jesus encourages us to choose. The second question is, what do I believe? He said, if you don't carry the cross, you cannot be my disciple. What does that mean? I have this little cross. A friend whom I admire made this for me. Many of you have little crosses and jewelry around your necks or on a bracelet today. A real cross was a staggering weight. Decades ago, a man named Arthur Blessed decided he'd carry a cross across the whole nation. Didn't take long till he stopped and put wheels on the cross. So it rolled like a large, awkward piece of luggage in the airport. Is that a demonstration of faith? Is that what Jesus means about carrying your cross? Or was that some bizarre way of sidestepping what Jesus really meant? Were I to ask you to take a poll, what's the cross mean to you? I suspect we get all kinds of hundred different temptations and interpretations. Is it just the instrument on which Jesus died? Is, does it signify God's unending love for us? Does it mean that he sacrificed his own child to cleanse us of sin? Was Jesus trying to force the hand of the Romans and start a rebellion? Was Jesus accepting the consequences of loving everybody and threatening the status quo and challenging religion with no compassion and politics with no kindness? And so, sort of like a lone Chinese standing in front of a column of tanks in Tiananmen Square, someone to be admired and to imitate. Allow me a radical word or two about the meaning of the cross. And I do not mean this to sound harsh and judgmental. Perhaps I do mean it as confession. I don't think we think that much about the cross. I think that once we leave this building, we don't give it another thought. We do not see ourselves as having committed any crimes, any capital crimes, maybe a couple of misdemeanors, but nothing demanding some sacrificial death. We sing of the cross with great sentiment, and I love the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It stirs me. But here, Jesus didn't ask us to sing it. He asked us to carry it. I think he's addressing a larger question. What am I willing to live for? What am I willing to live for so much that I'd also be willing to die for? What is so important to me that I accept the consequences of pursuing it? I mean, do I believe this stuff that Jesus teaches about loving neighbors and enemies? 
about being forgiven and practicing forgiveness, about gentleness and kindness? Do I believe this stuff about reconciliation, about justice and mercy, about this God who loves everyone no matter what color or gender or nationality or orientation or income or age? Do I believe the poor should be respected as much as the wealthy? That we should challenge those social structures that just keep people down? Do I believe in seeking the truth and exploring scientific landscapes that help us understand what's happening in creation? Do I believe that what happens to the least of these brings pain to God? Do I believe that acts of goodness and mercy and kindness bring joy to God? Am I willing to pursue the discipline, even the pain, of these beliefs? Beliefs not just academic, it's life-defining. And so the question is, what do I believe? And it leads to the third question, how shall I live? It gives examples of tower building and conducting war without counting the cost. To decide to live a certain way means paying a price. I get to do three services. I get to hear the choir twice. I get to hear the musician other times. They didn't just say, hey, I think I'll sing today. They don't say, well, I think I'll try the piano today. Hours upon hours, month upon month, year upon year of preparation, training, and practice. And in all of that, there's also the saying no to other things. Decisions cost. I love the story I read about a Brooklyn subway line recently that shut down for 90 minutes while two kittens played near the third rail. Interesting call to shut down the subway for 90 minutes. Think of the meetings that didn't happen, appointments that were not kept, deals that were not sealed. So they could herd cats on the railroad line. There were lots of strong opinions expressed about that on both sides. I suspect it's the kind of question that could actually split a whole church. <laughs> but somebody pays some price for every decision. Jesus asked if we're willing to follow him and pay the price. What does it cost? What's it cost a parent who gives an adult child his share of the will and never hears from him again? The cost of worry and grief, hoping beyond hope every time you hear a rumor, and then depression with every sunset. And then months, years later, the child comes home broken and ashamed and hungry. What does it cost that parent to take them back? More money. Loss of dignity. And the anger of the sibling who stayed home working the family business and who doesn't see this prodigal's return as justice. It's the next story that follows what Luke is saying here. What does it cost to forgive someone who's hurt you? What does it cost to be a voice for the poor, to stand between social predators and the powerless they prey upon? 
What risks do we take for the sake of others? What sacrifices do we make for the wounded and the refugee and the broken and the tired? What does it cost to save someone? On August 21, 2013, Michael Hill walked into an Atlanta elementary school. He was heavily armed with an AK-47. He went there intending to kill. Antoinette Huff was a school clerk, and she had opportunity at different times to run away. But she chose to stay and talk and try to connect. And you can hear the entire 911 tape. It's 24 minutes long. You just have to Google it. She made a connection with him. She convinced him to lay down his weapons and give himself up. And just before the police came in, she said this to him, I want you to know I love you. How did she decide to stay? What did that cost her? How did she get to be this person who lived with such courage and grace and love for someone who could kill her with a slight flinching of a finger? I suspect she made a lot of decisions along the way about who she was going to be and how she was going to live. Big decisions, most likely most of them small. It determined the direction of her life, and we do the same. So what matters to you? Do you notice how you build your life around those things? How shall we live based on what we believe? And all this begins when we understand that we are the daughters and the sons of God.